Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hello and welcome to Seriously, the podcast from the New Statesman that takes pop culture seriously. I'm Caroline Crampton. And I'm Anna Leskovich. This week, we're talking about the highs and lows of Christmas TV. That includes Agatha Christie's Witness for the Prosecution, a new episode of Jonathan Creek, Roald Dahl's Revolting Rhymes, and much more. Hello. Hello. Welcome back to another festive episode of Seriously. So we're getting involved in the Christmas TV showings, everything that's on the big British channels this year. Yeah, so I think it's been a really good year for Christmas TV, actually. Definitely a lot on. I would say a lot on of varying quality, but there is a lot on. (laughs) Yeah, if you aren't planning on moving from your sofa, then, you know, you've got plenty to entertain you. Maybe it's just our taste showing up, but I feel like there's a lot of spooky slash detective-y stuff this year. Yeah, I definitely feel feeling the sort of like slightly eerie Christmas vibes. And I do think there's been more and more murder mysteries, maybe not more and more, but like more and more good ones, or maybe more and more ones that like actual people watch, because I feel like we're moving away from like endless repeats of Midsummer Murders and yeah. more into like the Grantchester Christmas special, Agatha Christie standalone episodes, like these kinds of things. And the fact that they've brought back Jonathan Creek for Christmas as well. Mm-hmm. Which they didn't last year. They didn't last year. So yeah, there's loads and loads on. So on Christmas Eve, they aired the Grantchester Christmas special, which I haven't seen at the time of recording though I'm sure I will have seen at the time of airing and yeah I love Grantchester because I find it so like shamelessly twee and the yeah. vicar so just like ridiculously not meant to be involved in the crimes and yet is involved in every step of the crimes and so ridiculously hot for a vicar and the puppy everything yes. it's just so over the top that you cannot resist it yes my absolute favorite Grantchester episode is the one where the crime does it involve a lake no no it's, a, it's it... <laughs> that's <laughs> no. my favorite it's the one where they're like climbing up the town of King's College Chapel in Cambridge but it's also somehow about spies Um. (laughs) oh my god well this one has absolutely everything it's like Christmas special Mm. snow in Cambridge but also wedding but also pregnancy waters breaking but also murder left unsolved from nine (laughs) years before but also creepy toy maker (laughs) like I'm not even kidding it's all of it so I for one absolutely cannot wait yeah oh love Grantchester good old Grantchester our favourite detective (laughs) as you like to call him Grantchester (laughs) that's his name 
Other things that are on that we're not going to talk about in loads of detail include this Bronte sisters drama called To Walk Invisible, which airs on the 29th at 9pm. It's written by Sally Wainwright, who is sort of known for doing a grittier thing, I feel. She is the writer of Last Tango in Halifax, which is not exactly gritty, but it is sometimes in parts. I really like Last Tango, and actually there has been a Christmas special of that as well. I'll be watching that. But I think maybe what she's best known for and what she's won lots of awards for is Happy Valley. Mm-hmm. Starring um, Grant Chester, James starring Norton. Starring Grant Chester, James Norton, and, oh God, I've forgotten her name, but the actor who is... That one, you know the one. The one, the blonde you know one. The one. She's also in Last Tango and lots of other stuff anyway, but anyway it's descending quickly into chat on my mum's sofa yeah. with my mum I feel <laughs> you like know her she, what's she from oh it's going to annoy me now yeah anyway her. <laughs> um, you think the Bronte sisters and you don't necessarily think gritty right no although you think bleak you think bleak and something that I think maybe not so many people know about Sally Wainwright is that for many many years before she started writing like bespoke dramas she was a writer on soaps she wrote for Coronation Street and Emmerdale and stuff like that so she is very good at like consistently bringing the drama. Mm-hmm. But yeah, we were not that enamored of To Walk Invisible, right? Well, I was sort of putting it off in our Christmas watching schedule, which is funny because I've obviously read like Jane Eyre and Wuthering Heights, as most people have. And I'm quite into the like concept of the Bronte sisters and I've read some of their letters. But I just think there's not much drama to be had in the story of three very reclusive young women who are writing these very interesting things all the time. We're quite obsessed with like writers' lives Mm. and a lot of writers' lives genuinely aren't that interesting. (laughs) And I think that's what I was worried about with this. And then I watched 45 minutes of this two hour long. (gasps) Is it two hours? Two hour long program. And I had to stop. I had to give up. In the first 45 minutes, the picture painted is like, we're three sisters who write, but obviously women aren't really meant to do that. And there's sort of allusions to Charlotte writing letters to this mentor guy that she had who famously was like, women shouldn't write after years of sort of like encouraging her to explore her intellectual life then being like but wait women shouldn't write fiction are you crazy and then she was like really demoralized their brother is just painted as a bit of an alcoholic and also a bit of an asshole. And that's literally as far as we get. I mean, Charlotte rummages through Emily's things and finds her poems and Emily gets really pissed off. But by the end of the 45 minutes I'd got to, they were planning to publish their volume of poetry. It was just like a lot of long scenes of them like talking about not that exciting things and some very beautiful shots of like the Yorkshire Moors. It was very beautifully shot, all of it. But I mean, is there much to that story that can make for rip-roaring Christmas TV drama? Like I'm sure their lives are like, you know, rich and fulfilled at like any life, but just for me, yeah. the plot wasn't there. You did better than me because I meant to watch it and meant to watch it and didn't in fact even get round to watching it. Mm. But yeah, I agree with you that the most remarkable thing about their story, I feel like, is the fact that three great novelists happen to be related and mm-hmm. live in the same place. And their actual novels. Like, yeah. I know that we've seen Wuthering Heights to death and Jane Eyre to death, but I would have preferred like a new, genuinely cool, like updated version of that or something. Yeah, than... or one of the less adapted novels like Villette or yeah. uh, Tenant of Wildfire Hall or something like that definitely. Yeah. could definitely have stood to have another even to have the Sally Wainwright treatment I would yeah. be very up for that but yeah so a bit disappointed in that really mm-hmm. though I didn't watch the whole thing so maybe I haven't given it a fair appraisal also, you haven't seen it so if anyone has strong opinions on why we should actually give it a rewatch or continue persisting with it then do let us know you've got to make a persuasive case though <laughs> So the first thing we're going to talk about in depth this week is The Witness for the Prosecution, which is a BBC adaptation of a story by Agatha Christie. 
The story was originally published in 1925 and later adapted into a play by the author. This new BBC adaptation is by Sarah Phelps, who wrote the And Then They Were None adaptation last Christmas that had everyone on the edge of their seat. This one stars Toby Jones as the central lawyer, John Mayhew, and features Kim Cattrall as the murder victim, Emily French. I like young men. I like their company. (laughs) I want Leonard named my sole inheritor. Everything. How do you plead? Not guilty. I believe you, Leonard. So witness for the defense is from Vienna. She's restrained, composed, dignified. They were lovers. My wife, I was with her. I knew he had done something terrible. You're a liar. Why are you lying? I'd also like to say that it stars one of my favorite actors, Billy Howell. Oh, yes. um, Who I love, who was in Glue, and he's extremely handsome, but also a very good actor. I don't know where this story is going. You know where this story is going, having read the short story. Yes, I've read the short story, but I've not read the play. So I think I know the essential like solution to the crime, but I don't necessarily know exactly how they're going to arrive at it in this adaptation. Right. And when I saw that Billy Howell was playing the accused... Leonard Vole. Yeah, who is the man accused of the murder and basically everything points to him. I thought, because he, in Glue, he plays, and spoilers ahead for Glue, if you haven't seen it, I spoiled it for my boyfriend last night and he was like, I was going to watch that. And I was like, it was on TV two years ago and you weren't going to watch it. <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> but it starred Billy Howell as this absolutely innocent boy that no one would ever suspect mm. who done it. Like he had actually done it in the end. So I was like, oh, is this what they're doing again? But who knows? Anyway, this is very dark, I would say. Yes, both in the sense of the subject matter, because in the opening scenes, we see Kim Cattrall's character get like very messily bludgeoned to death. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of like blood. And oh my God, that scene with the cat is so (laughs) gross. So this beautiful, snowy, white, fluffy ragdoll cat walks through all the blood at the crime scene. And then you just watch it licking the blood from its white fur in slow-mo. And it's all hairy and matted and bloody. It's so disgusting. It's really like weird choice. And there are lots of little things like that in this. Even just like the visual grimness of it like it's very dark very foggy i mean we watched it on a preview service which is not the most high def thing to watch upcoming bbc dramas on but to me it didn't look great because it was just so relentlessly dark it's very dark it's very foggy it's very like gaslight in the fog actually it reminds me of the smog episode of the crown i did not get that far i think it's maybe episode five or something like that Mm. it focuses on this real event which was like this great smog where there was some really peculiar weather event that trapped all of the gases from the coal power stations on the south bank in the city and the whole place just turns into like yellow fog and everyone starts like coughing their lungs up and it's horrible there's a lot of coughing up of lungs in this toby jones is just like coughing the entire way through and yeah i think the and then there were none one of the great things about it was although it was quite dark subject matter it was quite visually enticing the whole way through like this big gorgeous house and these like dramatic cliffs and it was on that amazing island wasn't it with the like sort of hole in the the middle with sea spouting up through it and And they had flashbacks to like the sunny day on the beach Mm. quite a lot and everyone looked very glamorous because it was a big party the whole time and there was a bit of that in this like kim cattrall looks very glamorous obviously as she always does for me, it was just it was a bit more bleak almost, even though and then they were none was pretty bleak. I think Agatha Christie and other murder mysteries of that time have a association with being twee and I think when they adapt them for a modern audience they're really keen to be like yeah let's go dark let's go really really dark let's make it so dark and sometimes it can be a bit overwhelming. I think that's also true in the way that they try and handle class as well because a very very popular trope of the golden age murder mystery which to be fair Agatha Christie often subverts is that you've got some like rich people having a country house party and then there's a murder 
and the easy explanation for everybody in every sense is to be like oh just you know a random wandering peasant just came in and clubbed Mm. her to death like Mm -hmm. it was nothing to do with wasn't one of our lot none Mm. of us would ever stoop to do something so vulgar whereas obviously Agatha Christie subverts that all the time by showing that posh rich people can be just as vicious as anyone else Mm -hmm. but that is very much the setup you think you're getting here that you've got this rich woman played by Kim Cattrall Emily French she starts this affair with this young poor man Mm -hmm. who is very handsome and obviously the natural thing for everyone to suspect including her maid who goes out of her way to like point the finger at him is like well he did it and obviously the financial element of that class dynamic is played up a lot because she had so much money and he had none that's his motive his whole motive is financial but they've really gone with this maid character in this which I Mm. don't feel like she was such a strong character in the short story that I only read half of so it's not to spoil myself obviously it being a short story all the characters really only have like one purpose for existing they're just very lightly sketched aren't they yeah her purpose in the plot is to confirm that Leonard Vol, the suspected murderer did know that the rich old lady had changed her will in his Mm favour that's all she's there for Mm -hmm. because that is an incriminating fact as far as the police are concerned like you knew that you would benefit from her death and then she dies in that sense in this she's very much led with as the titular witness for the prosecution yeah but as everyone who's seen last night's episode will be aware slight spoiler for the first half the sort of twist introduced is that actually leonard's own wife becomes a witness for the prosecution yeah so it's a well established thing in court cases that if a witness what's called turns hostile so if you appear for one side Mm -hmm. and then you say something that is actually more help to the other side you are treated as a hostile witness Mm -hmm. and you are like turned over to the other lawyers and the legal team that originally presented you are allowed to cross-examine you as if you were a witness for the prosecution in this Mm -hmm. case so she having been brought there to testify that her not husband but like the man she lives with was with her the whole time she's then like no he wasn't Mm -hmm. so then the defense lawyer obviously he's really shocked but he's allowed to like cross-examine her as if she was there for the other side yeah so what did we think of toby jones in this again with this whole like darkening of things i found there's like a problematic sex scene yeah i found just like i mean i get what they were trying to do and they were trying to complicate his character and stuff but i just found it a bit much for Mm. like a period drama that you're watching with your family at christmas like he basically pressures his wife into sex that she's clearly not enjoying and it's really horrible things like that were what made this a little too dark for me almost which sounds ridiculous because it's obviously not that dark but i just think it's not fit for purpose in a way like if this was like a netflix series that we had been really trailed as dark then i would be like yeah it was fine but just because it seems like something i would want to sit and watch with my family like over a christmas pudding on boxing day i'm a bit like whoa guys (laughs) yeah i found it very dark obviously toby jones and his wife are having problems their son never came back from the first world war and they've like kept his bedroom exactly as he was both really distraught about it their marriage has kind of fallen apart because of it the wife is obviously experiencing that classic period housewife thing where she's like i can't feel anything because you see Mm -hmm. this horrible scene of her like sewing while he's talking to her and she just like sticks the needle in her thumb and like just keeps doing it the camera's just focused on the thumb and you're like i had to look away it's just like again just so so much misery upon misery upon misery it's not a joyful watching experience it really isn't i feel like and then there were none was i think a bit of a surprise hit last year they weren't Mm. expecting it to be the water cooler topic once everyone got back to work after it was longer though wasn't it it was over like five nights or something yeah they split it out more it worked because obviously the murders were incredibly violent but as you say the setting was beautiful it had all of britain's best character actors in it yeah 
all this kind of thing the juxtaposition was what made people go like oh i'm compelled to watch this really horrible thing mm-hmm. why Maybe. i don't know yeah whereas this i feel like they've lost the lightning element and they've just gone like yeah sarah you did good last year go full dark mm-hmm. and that's what she's done and mm-hmm. actually it's quite grim yeah i agree so maybe the second half will i don't know be more plot driven and therefore seem yeah. a little lighter and it'll be more fun but for now i feel slightly overwhelmed by the grimness of the witness for the prosecution The next thing we're going to discuss is the new Jonathan Creek episode called Demon's Roost. It once again stars Alan Davies as the illusion-obsessed detective and Sarah Alexander as his wife Polly. A series of unlikely events involving a scarecrow lead Jonathan and Polly to spend a few nights at the spooky mansion Demon's Roost, where they uncover the horrible crimes of a 19th century sorcerer and his modern-day counterpart. Somewhere in this house, if we look hard enough, we'll get to unlock the past. Mr. Creek, I'm your biggest fan. So we're on a ghost hunt then now. A rusty ring. All is solved. There's been a bit of an incident. You ready to face the demons? There's definitely some stuff going on around here that someone is desperate to keep a lid on. Very interesting. Jonathan, dead rat. I'll get them to send one up. Jonathan Creek, forever ridiculous, right? From the very, very outset, it was ridiculous. You cannot for a second complain that, you know, back when Jonathan Creek was a regular series, what, like in the 90s or something, was it even the 90s? I don't know. It seems like a long time ago. I think it was. Yeah, that it was a serious series that then had a farcical turn. Nope, it was farcical from the beginning. It was always farcical. It's having Alan that, Davies. <laughs> <laughs> true. But having said that, this one is farcical to the max. Yes. It is like absurd. It's got a great cast. Lovely to see Alan Davies back. Sarah Alexander, I think, has been a bit less popular as an mm. addition to Jonathan Creek. So Jonathan Creek, I feel like, was always a bit of a loner and he had this like nice push-pull relationship with the investigative journalist. But when he's married, is it sadder? It shouldn't be. It should be happier. But he seems to take on a more pathetic quality and I don't know why. Yeah, I think he does as well. Maybe it's because he... Like in this one, we see him selling the windmill, which was a very iconic this is Jonathan Creek. Absolutely thing. shocking. So I had forgotten that apparently he would, was moving out of the windmill in the last episode. I'd forgotten that too. Yeah. yeah. For me, Jonathan Creek is like a very weird show, very ridiculous show that like sells itself on like kooky Alan Davies living in a windmill. Mm. <laughs> and you're like, why would you like marry him off and get rid of the windmill? It like absolutely makes no sense. Like it's a ridiculous, silly murder mystery. It's, you're not in it for the character development. No, and but yet that's what they try and give us because I think we're supposed to believe that, you know, Jonathan Creek has like grown out of his windmill days where he just like made magic tricks alone in his windmill all the time. And, you know, now he's got a nice wife and they have a nice normal house and so he's selling the windmill and all of his weird magic paraphernalia that goes in it i'm fuming i'm absolutely fuming so i I think what we're supposed to see in the character is like he's grown up and moved on whereas actually as a viewer i'm just like all you're doing is getting rid of the things that made the show funny there is still lots of fun to be had i enjoyed warwick davies's turn as the the local vicar that was excellent um he's great and quite lively and just just brings some comic relief doesn't he in his performance it's it's really good there's sort of a weird moment where you're meant to suspect him a bit like (laughs) but you sort of never can because he's just so like his whole performance is so warm and yeah there's just no way but they really go for it in terms of the like hamminess of the central murder conceit in this right yeah so they partially explain the hamminess by having the modern day villain i guess he's portrayed as it's this hammer horror film director mm-hmm. called nathan claw who lives in the scary demons roost house but has had a kind of serious stroke so isn't able to communicate anymore so he's like this 
spooky presence in a wheelchair who like just flicks his eyes around madly Mm -hmm. but there's loads of like posters for all of his films and all the rest of it and he's supposed to have based his scariest slash most ridiculous film on the real exploits of the sorcerer who once owned his spooky house yeah some like 16th century guy yeah it says 19th does it doesn't seem very yeah yeah, sorry well i thought it was but no it does seem much earlier than that and anyway it's much too complicated to go into now but like one thing leads to another and basically jonathan and polly end up finding the scary dungeon where the scary sorcerer did scary murders because the thing that like the the classic selling point of jonathan creek is that because he knows how to do magic tricks he can like unveil very specific physical tricks done in spaces so the like really famous one is like a locked room mystery that he solved and like every little thing in this relies on like someone put a tiny piece of cardboard on a shelf allowing this ball bearing Mm. or this tablet to roll down behind these books and it's like always extremely ridiculous and like extremely coincidental and relies on one tiny sleight of hand to uh, unveil a whole series of serial killings Mm. which is obviously ridiculous but in this it it does just feel so ridiculous like they lift out a coffin of this guy this old sorcerer who owns the original house from its very grave and lo and behold ghosts start flying out but were they really ghosts like yes they were definitely cgi ghosts (laughs) or were they weird bits of metal and tissue paper coiled to spring just so and it's like no because if it had been that it would have looked like that it would like that and they wouldn't have like all died from fright at seeing a cgi ghost um, <laughs> and then the one of the big reveals involves the idea that someone built a room on its side to make it look like people are like floating through the air yeah. and being sucked into holes when actually it's just gravity. normal gravity and all these things are ridiculous but nothing Nothing was so ridiculous as one moment in this Jonathan Creek thing that left me absolutely fuming from the how ridiculous it was, even for Jonathan Creek, which is this bit where the Hammer Horror film director, as we have described, is communicating through his eyes and he's trying to signal something and to one of his niece or whatever. And she's like desperately trying to figure out what it is. And he's like looking from a phone to a gap in the door, back to the phone, to the door, phone to the door. And later it's revolved that through a crack in the door, there was a poster on the wall and that poster only revealed the letter Y through the small gap. So he was looking at the phone and then to the Y, phone E, phony, the guy next to me is a phony. I'm sorry, why don't you just look wildly at the guy next to you? Yeah. Like, <laughs> it was him, it was him. Like, <laughs> that would have been fine, that would have been enough, but no, we had to do this whole ridiculous phony thing. Hearing Alan Davies completely deadpanly deliver that as like a, a key revealing factor in the murder mystery, like literally made me scream. <laughs> yeah, that's true. The bit for me was the bit where Jonathan Creek just like casually burns a man to death. Um, and it doesn't really (laughs) it doesn't really seem to get mentioned again so obviously it's in self-defense like this is from an excellent vintage jonathan creek episode the one with all the apes and the monkeys in it like the guy that jonathan creek put in prison i didn't get this bit i obviously had forgotten it well the guy that he put in prison for that has just got out and he's like jason statham-esque gangster who comes around with a knife every five minutes like where is he where's jonathan he's like come to get him and he you know just after jonathan and polly have escaped from the main peril the like jason statham minor peril and the police have been like 
by the way, we can't protect you. That's like all just, they said. They were just like, we don't really have the resources for 24-hour police protection, so we're just going to leave you to this one. And they're like really chill about it. Yeah. Probably because they know that they can like <laughs> put them in a fire pit. Yeah, so anyway, there's a the main denouement of the whole thing involves a fire pit and they have a little tussle with the guy <laughs> and drop Throw him in, in the fire pit. A fire pit. And then I kept waiting because I feel like Jonathan Creek operates or used to operate on the same like moral code roughly as the Doctor in Doctor Who in the sense that like, Obviously, he can, like, rein the pain if necessary, but yeah. mostly he's a magnanimous god. And he, like, dangles it in front of them, yeah. like, oh, I'm going to murder you. And then he's like, no, no, I'm not going to because I'm better than you. Yes, exactly. So I was waiting for him to, like, haul him back out the fire pit and, and be hand like, him over to the police. Hand him over to the police. Nope, he just presses the lever that, like, shuts the doors over the fire pit. And then they're like, phew, that's that sorted. Yeah, so it's like this, like, we're literally a pit of fire and gas yeah. and petrol. And I thought that by closing the top of it, he was like, ah, he's going to starve the thing of oxygen and the fire yeah. will go out. No. Apparently he just burnt to death in there. <laughs> and he's never mentioned again. The and police don't bring it up when they like haul the body out. They don't seem to mention it like to Jonathan and his wife. Like, did, did you throw this guy in the fire pit? Because it seems like you threw this guy in the fire pit and you can't actually do that even if he has a knife. Like, <laughs> Yeah, that's not really, that wasn't proportional <laughs> to no. what he was trying to do. Yeah, um, Absolutely ridiculous episode and probably what everyone's always wanted from a Jonathan Creek Christmas special. Yeah, highly enjoyable actually in all of its terribleness. <laughs> You've got to watch it. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Now we're going to talk about Revolting Rhymes, which is a new animated series based on Roald Dahl's poems of the same name. They were first published in 1982 and retell well-known fairy stories as modern macabre tales. This adaptation is animated by the studio behind The Gruffalo and includes voices by Tamsin Grieg, Rob Brydon and David Walliams. Was Riding Hood a gun for hire? Did Cindy's marriage plan backfire? Why did the fairest of them all remove the mirror from the wall? Did Jack smell good enough to eat? And who's the girl with smelly feet? The perpetrators of these crimes, the stars of Dahl's revolting rhyme. I was a huge fan of Roald Dahl's revolting yeah, rhymes as a child. I used to write my own versions. Oh, so really? any of the tales he hadn't done, I would like do my own versions of like Goldilocks or whatever. 
and I loved it. I can remember doing it in like Curls MT font, mm. like on my mum's old computer. It was just the joy of my life. And there are some lines that literally just will stick with me forever. And I think the one like classic line of this is in his Red Riding Hood story. The central twist is that she shoots the wolf dead. Yeah. And it says something like, the young girl smiles, one eyelid flickers. She whips a pistol from her knickers. Lines like that are just so good. And they're really like updated, these poems, aren't they? They'll have references to like Barclays Bank or... I remember the bit in the Cinderella story where she went for a guy who makes homemade marmalade and jam. I loved those sorts of like weird little homely lines. And this really remains true to the spirit of that, I think. It very much does. Particularly in the first one, they kept the framing narrative of the wolf telling the story to the babysitter. Is that in the the poems? I think so, I don't remember that bit. I'm pretty sure in the poem you don't realise until the end that it has been the wolf talking the right. whole time whereas obviously you know that from the start in the in the animation again one of those really great lines is when they're like where everywhere that little red riding went she wore her lovely wolf skin coat mm. that's just so great to me and then when she comes back in the three little pigs story he says not only does she have two wolf skin coats she also has a lovely pigskin case yeah. which is just so i love the viciousness of red as a character So they really bring all those elements in and they create their own framing narrative, I think, in their tying of all these stories together. Because in the book, the Roald Dahl book, although Little Red Riding Hood pops up again in the tale of the Three Little Pigs and stuff like that, they're mostly pretty shut and closed individual fairy tales. Whereas in this one, they make Snow White and Little Red Riding Hood best friends and their stories have lots of interweaving bits. And then in the Jack and the Beanstalk story, they make Jack the decent man that Cinderella ends up marrying right at the end. And they use these very, very small throwaway bits. Even that line, that throwaway line about Barclays Bank becomes Porkley's Bank, which is the bank that this pig lives at, who's one of the central characters in the Three Little Pigs story, but also in the first Red Riding Hood story, and also the one who lends Snow White some money. And it ties all these things together through like geography and character, which I think was really, really well done. Because at first I was a bit like, oh, this is suspect. I thought they were going to be fun individual tales. But by the end, I was like, oh, amazing. I really like it. And it creates, I think, what you need for an animation of these, actually, which is a world. You need to feel mm. like you've gone to a world by integrating them all you do feel a bit like you visited like fairy tale city mm. where all the different stories coexist and cross over with each other and it's yeah it's really good i'm not 100 sure but i think i like the kind of feminist politics of these stories as mm. well because there's a lot of retribution exacted by women in these versions which is really fun though sometimes i worry a little bit in the Roald Dahl stories that they veer into you know in game of thrones when like all the women are on top and you can feel like you can just see george rr R. martin furiously masturbating in the background Mm. as he writes Daenerys and you're like okay calm down this is very fetishized sometimes I worry that like the pistol from the knickers and stuff is a bit in that vein but perhaps I'm overanalyzing (laughs) at that point I just read a piece on the Radio Times website actually where they were exploring the idea that there's actually a kind of queer narrative with Red and Snow White I definitely got that vibe because there's no male figure in either of their lives they look like they're on a date in the second revolting rhymes Um, and the apparently the head of the studio they asked him and he was like yeah well we just left that open people can you know interpret it how they like which is at the end of their sort of date snow white says like i loved it i had such a great time which is something you sort of it just felt more like in that vein than Mm. like a friend i don't know but again it's sometimes quite convenient for these things to do the absolute bare minimum to work towards a queer storyline and then get a pat on the back for it but again these really marketed at quite young children yes so yeah we are reading a lot into these like slightly background moments 
I always think that kids really do like things to be scary. And there's mm. a sort of an exploration of that in Micro when the wolf is dressed as the babysitter and is yeah. telling stories to Red Riding Hood's children because they really develop this frame narrative. And the stories are getting more horrible and more horrible and the younger kid is not enjoying it. And so he ramps it up and makes it even more horrible. And then the kid starts laughing. Mm. And I think there's really something in that and in making things so ridiculously horrible that they become funny. And that's sometimes what happens in these tales. There was always Roald Dahl's modus anyway, there wasn't it? Mm-hmm. That like a giant who reaches into your bedroom and blows dreams at you is quite sinister. Mm-hmm. But like a bumbling giant who eats snotty snorls cumbers reaching into your bed is funny yeah you know and like the idea of a giant is creepy but the idea of a giant called bone cruncher and (laughs) child guzzler becomes so ridiculously horrible that you just it's funny and entrancing yeah i thought it was great i mean for me one of the challenges of animating roald dahl is that when you think roald dahl you think quentin blake yeah and that style of drawing is so magical and so just deeply associated with his work that it's really challenging to find an animation style that's very different from that Mm. and that still works. And for me, the the visuals of it, I wasn't completely enamoured by. And I don't know if that's the reason because I always have Quentin Blake in the back of my mind. Yeah, I didn't think of that. I similarly, I didn't really notice the animation. I was just watching it to see how they'd done the next plot Mm -hmm. point I was aware of, you know. And there were things I liked. I really liked The Bank, for example. Yes. There were funny bits that I really enjoyed, but as a whole visual world, I was like, maybe lacks a bit of the magic of the Mm. Quentin Blake illustrations. Overall, definitely worth watching. I think even if you're not planning on watching any kids' stuff this year, because every year they do have like a big kids' thing, whether it's The Gruffalo or something else. They're also doing like Ethel and Ernest this year, which is a story by Raymond Briggs of the snowman and Father Christmas fame. But again, it seems very heavily marketed towards adults and looks quite boring like it's all like starring academy award winner jim broadbent or nominated or whatever but you know like it's very much marketed as this quite like twee family story that could melt your heart this i think seems a lot better because it's fun and i think fun for adults as well as children yeah it's definitely one of those things that is enjoyable if you're a child and additionally enjoyable if you know what Barclays Bank is Mm -hmm. and if you haven't read any of Roald Dahl's revolting rhymes please go back and read them because they're really short and they're really worth reading they're just excellent Thanks for listening to this episode of Seriously, the pop culture podcast from The New Statesman. If you enjoyed the show, why not subscribe to make sure you never miss another episode? You can find us wherever you get your podcasts, including in iTunes, where you could leave us a rating and a review. It helps other people find the show. Also on our website, seriouslypod.com, you'll find all our back episodes. There you can find our specials on Home Alone, Gilmore Girls, Harry Potter, Friends, and the very festive Love Actually. We're also available many other places on the internet, including on Twitter, Facebook, and Tumblr. We're Seriously Pod on all of them. 2017 is just around the corner and we need your recommendations for things we should feature on the show get in touch on social media or email us on seriouslypod at gmail.com to tell us about something you think we should cover or to tell us your thoughts on what we've already discussed and if you feel strongly that more pop culture needs to be taken seriously spread the word and tell your friends and family about the podcast Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.